Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Presbyopia, an ocular condition that affects so many. It's the rare patient that has perfect, pristine eyes. There have been significant advances in the management of this condition. But how does one decide the best course of action to treat the unique eyes of each patient? What a complicated topic that is. Not just choose the right patient as if it's black or white, but rather kind of steer the patient into what we think is going to work best for them and what is the best refractive solution for them. What I really want my patient to know, and I think it's incumbent upon us as ophthalmologists, is they've got options. With so many options, how do you find the perfect match? Doctors Rob Weinstock and John Berdahl will take you through the patient selection process. Coming up on Presbyopia Unlocked. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so excited to be here doing this podcast. My name is Rob Weinstock. I am here with my amazing colleague and dear friend, Dr. John Berdahl. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, same to you. We've got a great, great, exciting topic today that that we should kick around a little bit, John. We're starting to be the old guys. Well, at least I am a little bit. And when we first started in this amazing field of ophthalmology, refractive surgery meant something very different than what it means today. I think both you and I were getting our hands wet with LASIK like crazy, you know, a decade ago or more, even two decades ago. And that was refractive surgery. And now we find ourselves almost 20 years later, where at least for me, the bulk of the refractive surgery I do is lenticular based. Have you also seen this shift? Yeah, so that's definitely the case for me too. And I do LASIK and PRK and SMILE and all that kind of stuff. But the most powerful refractive surgery we do is cataract surgery. There's no other refractive surgery that exists where you get a 25 diopter swing in a matter of seconds. And one thing I would like to touch on is I'm getting older too. And some of that gray comes from selecting the wrong presbyopic IOL patient and trying to redeem ourselves from that. Tell me about the ideal patient that you pick, but then maybe even more importantly, tell me about the patient that isn't ideal, but you're willing to take a risk on for a presbyopic IOL. Yeah, what what a complicated topic that is. And I wish there really was an easy answer, John. I think a lot of it comes with our gray hair, like you said, and our experience in and how to choose the right patient, not just choose the right patient as if it's black or white, but rather kind of steer the patient into what we think is going to work best for them and what is the best refractive solution for them. And I think we learn that by making mistakes in LASIK and trying to choose good and bad candidates. I mean, the first and foremost thing is, is I mean, even before we get to the refractive component, we like to make sure the patient's ready for cataract surgery and actually wants to fix their vision. Once we've established that they're having trouble seeing and they truly want to see better, then it's a matter of examining the patient's situation, their eye, the health of their eye, and to determine whether you can use what you have to get them out of glasses. Not every patient comes in with a perfect macula, a perfect round cornea, and we can just slide a multifocal lens into. So, in fact, that's the rare patient. So that's when we start to think about, well, what are the basic criteria? 
we're a mostly co-managed practice. And so most patients that come in for a cataract eval, you know, the vast majority have that cataract. And because they were seen by an OD outside of our practice first. And so it's pretty rare that, that we, they don't end up with cataract surgery. And so what we try to do before they get to our office is educate them that they have options. We're not trying to talk anybody into anything. And I actually have a pet peeve with the word conversion rate because it feels like I'm converting somebody from something they didn't want into something or something that they yeah, didn't want into something now that they're going to get. And I, I prefer a, the phrase adoption rate. But what I really want my patient to know, and I think it's incumbent upon us as ophthalmologists, is they've got options. You can have regular cataract surgery and maybe not need glasses, but likely will, um, certainly for up close. We can try and get you good distance vision um, and you'd wear some readers and, and not need distance glasses as much. Or we can try to use lenses that have a, a built-in bifocal and hopefully get you out of glasses for almost all your activities. And I want patients to start thinking about that before they get into our practice so they can make a good decision, a good informed decision when they're here. Because how many of us can make a multi-thousand dollar decision, especially about something as precious as our vision, on the spot? And that's something that, that really is helpful for us. And I tell patients that aren't good candidates, listen, you may have a friend that got these this technology, and um, I want you to know I thought about it for you, but it's not in your best interest, and I wouldn't be a good steward of your trust or your dollars if I put one in. So I have that conversation both ways. Yeah, John, that's such a great point, and you bring up that that important concept of educating the patients about the opportunity to reduce their dependency on glasses, and even though not everybody might be a candidate, if they at least know that's an option, they're thinking about it. I think that there's a big missing gap where we're really, instead of talking about premium cataract surgery, we're really just talking about improving someone's quality of life and trying to reduce their need for glasses after cataract surgery, whether it's 100% of the time, 50% of the time, or a quarter percent of the time. We have such amazing tools these days with different lenses, whether they're monofocals or torix or lasers that correct astigmatism on the cornea or a multifocal optic, or even a trifocal optic that's in the near future. We have all these choices and, you know, it's getting challenging, but if you do your homework and you think through it and are thoughtful and methodical, um, you really can, can help these patients achieve amazing independence and they appreciate you for it. Okay. So Rob, let's talk about some of these more challenging patient selection discussions. We all know that with a, a pristine eye, we're going to have a pretty good shot. Not foolproof, but pretty good shot. And we've you know, had our conversation and educated the patient about the pros and cons. And you've got a patient that's really hoping to be able to see well without glasses, wants a presbyopic eye well, but they've got um, real dryness. What are you doing? Those are challenging cases because a lot of times you're right. These They don't think they have dry eyes. To them, they don't feel dry. But we look at the topography and we look at the tear film and we can tell it's irregular and it's going to affect the quality of the optics, especially with multifocal optics. So there's no question that we really use topography in the clinical exam to um, you know identify these patients and really treat the ocular surface first make sure we have a stable topography, no irregular astigmatism, 
And, you know, we watch out for that subtle map dot fingerprint dystrophy. Um, and we, we're cautious to avoid patients who have significant corneal pathology because you can get into trouble. But certainly, like you mentioned, um, everybody should do a good analysis on the tear film and the health of the ocular surface and the stability of it. So if you're like me and you've not, you made a mistake and, and uh, you put some, put a multifocal in somebody who you didn't think the dryness was going to be a problem, how, how do you redeem that? What, what do you do? Well, you have to really make that, that effort to, to heal the ocular surface and then follow that up with a little PRK if needed or a little bit of a uh, limbal relaxing incision if there's some regular sill that's hanging around. You ultimately have to make that call if somebody's not happy and is having trouble vision. Why is it not good? Is it the macula? Do you got an OCT? Is it PCO? And some of these decision trees are, 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 um, are kind of uh, final, you know. So if you do the YAG, um, you're kind of committing to keeping that lens eye. So if you have a very unhappy patient, you've done everything you can, and the patient is generally dissatisfied, I've had the rare case where I've explanted the lens before I did the YAG because I could just tell that's where it was going, and I didn't want to cut off my ability to have that option by doing the YAG. Yeah, me too. It only ta- It's only taken me getting burned a, a few times to say, uh, let's pause, let's slow down the process and make sure we get that dryness treated as well as possible beforehand. And then know that there's a little higher risk that you may not love this lens. But I also don't want to rob people or, and this is going to sound too strong, but condemn them to absolute presbyopia for the rest of their life when they would have had a shot at at, you know, a more spectacle independent life. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to, to slow the process down when we meet these folks. And you touched on something that I, that's, uh, I think a conundrum that we face all the time, subtle ABMD, advanced ABMD. We're gonna, we're gonna put, uh, do a PTK or superficial keratectomy first but subtle ABMD, the topography is not quite right. This person wants some presbyopia correction. Are you doing a superficial keratectomy first, a PTK first? Are you putting in plugs and treating the dryness and hoping that uh, a new, a better ocular surface is going to help or saying no multifocal at all for that person? What are you doing? Because it's common. 10% of people have ABMD, at least subtle ABMD. Yeah, I think a lot of it even backs up to their personality. If, you know, if they have a super dense cataract and a little mild uh, ABMD and, you know, they're, they're not even complaining that much about glare or about the vision being that terrible, but, but they're starting to have trouble, I think you can get away with it in a subtle case. But anybody with significant, significant disease, even if I'm going to be using a monofocal, I'm going to treat that first. Because I want that patient to be after the cataract surgery, I want them to be have to have the best possible vision immediately. I want that to be the wow factor, the cataract surgery. I don't want the wow factor to be the uh, super superficial keratectomy. So I'm going to do my best. If it, if I think the cornea is one or two lines of vision affecting, you know, to, in, in part of the whole system, and it's going to give them only 20, 25, or 20, 30 best corrected even with a monofocal, I'm going to treat that first for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I have gotten more aggressive doing PTK and superficial keratectomy before surgery. And so I'm in the same spot and, and it's two reasons. One, doing a afterwards, what are you going to do with that patient with irregular astigmatism? You can do PRK, but it's going to be less predictable because they've got an 
irregular epithelium that you're unmasking with your PRK, and it's going to be harder to get a predictable PRK. Um, and and you could do LASIK, and and it's going to be more predictable. But you still have the irregular epithelium on the top. So I really have gotten more aggressive about treating the epithelium before surgery. And the other thing that I'll, I'll share is that I think the most underused diagnostic test in ophthalmology is a gas perm over refraction. So you got that 2040, 2030 cataract that isn't seeing quite as well as they'd like. And you put a gas perm contact lens on and all of a sudden they see crisply. We know that's not the cataract, that's the cornea, and let's get that cornea polished first. And, and that's something that my partner Vance taught me, um, and, and boy, has that saved my bacon a number of times. Yeah, nice, John. So let me ask you a couple kind of pointed questions about your interaction with patients. Lay it on me. So like when you see a patient, things look good. You know, they definitely have cataracts best corrected, say 20, 30, 20, 40 cataracts. And um, pretty much using what we used to wearing glasses, um, progressives for the last 10 years or so. Motivated to get cataract surgery, healthy eyes, low amounts of sill, everything's looking good. How do you, in a short amount of time, assess whether you should give them a mult or whether you think they're going to tolerate multifocal optics and that's a good path? or whether you should just stick to, say, bilateral distance, correct the sill with a laser, and just, you know, keep it a little more simple and have them wear over-the-counter readers. How do you kind of, what do you ask them that kind of steers you into what you recommend? Yeah, I ask them how they want to use their eyes, you know, and, and, and I ask them this question, how uh, do you want to wear glasses all the time? And I don't, do you mind wearing glasses? Because in the upper Midwest, nobody minds anything. Everybody's happy to, you know, if people minded things up in the upper Midwest, they wouldn't live here because the winters are rough. And so they live down by you in Florida. So we, we have a bunch of hardy stock up here. And so I say, would you rather not wear glasses? And they say, yes. And, and then we talk through it. And if their eyes are pristine, I really would prefer to correct it all with one surgery and not come back and do a LASIK enhancement unless we need to. Now, I tell them it's a three-step process that we might do that, but I, have, I, I would rather do it all with the lens. And then the decision of you know, distance or distance and near really comes down to how they want to use their eyes. Are they willing to trade some flexibility in their vision for a little bit of decreased quality? with the multifocal and, um, and, and then the financial part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, one other question I have for you on patient selection that comes up commonly is myoglaucoma and ocular hypertension. Are you willing to put a multifocal in somebody that has um, high eye pressures or uh, let's say myoglaucoma, meaning by the AAO definition, no visual field change, but they do have a little change on their optic nerve head appearance or OCT, but no visual field change. Can that person get a multifocal from you? You know, it's circumstantial, but I definitely have had patients that have had incredibly stable glaucoma with very, very slowly marching optic nerve changes over decades that are in their you know late 70s, were diagnosed in their early 60s, and they have been completely healthy and stable, followed well, treated well. You know, it's safe to say that that demographic is not going to progress unless something weird happens. And I'm comfortable with those, especially with the newer generation multifocals. If I think that they have a family history or it's looking more like, you know, we're getting to where it's starting to have some significant changes in the optic nerve fiber layer, I'm going to be more conservative. 
Um, so it's circumstantial, but I would say if you're really comfortable with it, it's okay, um, especially with the newer technology. And do you do it in combination with the MIGs on those patients? Yeah, I mean, with the newer generation MIGs, it's certainly reasonable, especially with something that's a little bit more simple and easy to use with less like, likely risk of hemorrhage or damage or um, you know, any hemorrhaging in the angle, something like an eye stent inject. That's a real more simple, you know, basic uh, kind of entry level, so to speak, procedure. I don't, I like to keep things somewhat simple. You know, at, at the end of the day, I want to do no harm and I want to make sure the patient is happy. If they are motivated for multifocality and total freedom, I'm going to work hard to do that. But if the patient says to me, hey, I don't mind wearing readers, you know what? I am not going to push for, you know, a multifocal lens. I'm going to fall back on a monofocal with astigmatism correction. I'm going to listen to the patient and what their desires are. I will, I will fight for them, but I'm not going to talk them into anything. And I'm going to also always try to give them my most conservative recommendation um, on this, their situation. So, so John, when you, when you're, um, thinking about targeting for a patient and you're really, you're really doing your best to try to give them a full field of vision. We have a lot of options now to choose from, you know, do you like, are you like myself where you tend to use say one, say either extended depth of field lens or say a lower power multifocal lens and say the first dominant eye that you do and then the second eye maybe go with a higher power uh, reading point or the stronger multifocal because that's kind of what I've fallen into a really successful pattern with. What are you doing? Yeah, I do almost exclusively right now uh, mix and match. And so I'll use a lower power multifocal or extended depth of focus in the typically dominant eye and then a medium-powered multifocal in the non-dominant eye. And I tell you, Rob, I say this a, a little tongue-in-cheek, but not totally, is that you know I, I, I do listen to the patient, but I don't trust that they know how they use their eyes. So I'll have patients who will say, um, you know, I don't read. That doesn't matter to me. And I put in bilateral um, low-power ad or extended depth of focus lenses, and they come back and they say, they can't read their pill bottle. And I said, well, that's your fault. You told me you didn't read. When I know every patient <laughs> reads. And so, um, so people want to see distance intermediate and near. And so I have a tendency to do almost exclusively mix and match. I know a lot of people offset that um, non-dominant eye, but I haven't had as much success with that because, um, because of the glare and the, the nighttime driving difficulty. So I'm almost uh, over 95% mix and match. And that's one of the reasons I'm excited for trifocal technology in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've come to the same conclusion by learning things the hard way, just like you. And I hear many surgeons that have been doing this for a while come to the similar conclusion. And like you said, even though after that first eye, patients might say, oh, this is perfect. I'll be able to be just fine like this. Let's just do the same thing in the other eye. That's what I was doing for a while, and it, the same thing happened. So I literally almost exclusively put a higher ad in the second eye so they really get that pop on the reading. Now, that being said, there's another strategy that I believe you use almost as much, if not more, than uh, multifocal or EDOF optics, and that's monovision. I have so many patients that are either natural myopes 
or that have done monovision and contact lens wearers or myopes that take their glasses off to read. And I'll take the first eye and just nail the distance with a monofocal. And the vast majority of those low myopes, they, they do amazing by leaving the second eye near. Do you do, you do that as a, as a strategy too? You, you, you look hard to find the monovision patients? All right, this is where it's going to get fun because I don't love monovision in cataract patients. I love it in LASIK, but I haven't had the success that you've had, you know, with, um, with cataract patients. And, and I, I wonder with light adjustability around the corner, if that may change because I can for sure nail the distance eye every time and I can dial in the non-dominant eye, but unless they've gotten to absolute or close to absolute presbyopia. So, you know, a 65 plus year old person that's done well with monovision, I feel like my monovision patients aren't as happy. And so I really only reserve it for older patients that have done well. And, and I know that I'm in the minority here. A lot of people have great success with monovision. I just, my experience hasn't been as good as others. So what am I doing wrong? Well, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I just think that you're very, very good and have found a sweet spot with the newer technology lenses and especially the ability of a low ad and a higher ad multifocal. Um, you know, a lot of these, you, you are right in one fact, and I've had rare patients with monovision where they somehow had a little bit of depth of field with their near eye. This is what I run into the most. And they're, they feel like they can't have as much range of vision as they had with their own natural lenses or their contact lenses as they do with like, say, a fixed monofocal. So, I mean, there are caveats to monovision, just like there are to multifocal optics. And that's what comes down to, you know, picking the right patient. And I know it's hard to do, and there's some amazing tools out there, like, you know, Dell's questionnaire, and we don't use that because it's kind of cumbersome and takes a long time for us to go through. But I got to tell you, there's a real gestalt that I use when I talk to patients that I try to get a sense of how easygoing they are, whether they're going to um, tolerate things that are not perfect and understand that there is no perfect solution here, that we're trying to find the best technology we have that they're going to be the happiest with. And I've had patients that I can just tell are, um, they're going to be challenging and the way they ask questions or their attention to detail or even the mildness of the cataract is not in, um, in line with the degree of their vision loss objectively. I just know that it's going to be hard to make them happy. How do you, how do you weed out some of these tough ones, John, personality-wise? Yeah, um, I, I, I ask them if they're a picky patient. And, and I just ask it really point blank. Did, are you visually picky? And then I look at them, but I'm also paying attention to their spouse. And if their spouse is nodding their head big time, that's a pretty big warning sign to me. And I follow that question up with, um, you know, when you get a new pair of glasses, do you have to have them remade frequently? And if they have to have them remade frequently, that's a watch out for me with, with multifocality. And then if I am going to, you know, push the limits a little bit on an eye that isn't pristine with a, a multifocal IOL, I make sure to tell them that there is a small but real chance that they might not like this lens and we have to come back and take it out. Great pearls, John. Um, and to, to add to that, sometimes when you start talking to patients about either distance vision, astigmatism correction, 
multifocal lenses and they start prodding with more and more questions, it, you start to realize that this person perhaps is so detail-oriented and so worried about things that all of this is almost worrying them too much. And sometimes I'll just take a step back and say, listen, the, sometimes less is more. Sometimes you need to just go with your gut instinct of what you know is like the most reasonable approach for you that you're going to be happy with. So you don't get yourself into a situation where you're, you're questioning what you're doing. I don't want my patients questioning whether they made the right decision. I want them very confident that they made a good decision or we made it together and they're going to go down the road positively. I love that. I love that, Rob. And, and I, I find that sometimes people almost feel bad that they chose a monofocal. And I've got to reassure them that, no, you're, that's some of the best vision you can possibly get is with the monofocal, today's modern monofocal lenses and a good pair of glasses afterwards. That's fantastic vision. And they shouldn't feel bad about that decision at all. I agree. And, you know, sometimes it's funny. You'll have, um, you'll have a patient who says, you know, you'll mention a lens that corrects all the vision with multifocal optics and they'll say, oh, no, 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 My friend had that and they didn't like it. I don't want that. You know, that's a tricky situation, right, John? Because if you, even though the lens is probably better, the one you're going to put in because the newer generations are better, if anything isn't perfect, you know that's always going to be in the back of their mind if you try to talk them into the, to that technology. So it's a slippery slope. But then again, you don't want to cut off their chances. But honestly, a lot of times, I'm not going to push it. I'm going to say that's totally fine. I think we should still correct your astigmatism. I think we should still try to get you at least out of glasses for distance vision. And most of the time they say, hey, that's great. I'll just wear readers. I'm totally fine with that. I think that, that that's perfect, Rob. And the other thing that I would say here is I think there's a really good solution to that that type of patient. And that's for us to listen. And I am terrible at that. And when you, I think that there's a study out there that shows how long doctors let patients talk and it's like 12 seconds. And I I bet that I'm right there with them. And if we can just listen to what patients want, then we can help match the right technology to them. Totally agree. They, they, sometimes they really let you know, because a lot of times they've already done some research and they've already formulated in their head what they want. Now, sometimes you have to tell them no, like if they have, you know, AMD and they come in thinking I want a multifocal, you're going to have to say, hey, I get it, but that's not safe in your eye. But most of the time, what they're thinking about, they're got, they've gotten comfortable with it. You know, just like when a patient finally decides they want to get LASIK, you can't really talk a patient into LASIK unless they've already decided that they're ready to do it. And the same goes with some of these lens selections. People have already decided how they want their vision to be, and you have to follow their lead a little bit. Totally agree. And then, and then when there is that patient that hasn't done great, and I bet they're going to talk, uh, talk about this in one of the exciting podcasts to come, but uh, bring them close. Don't stiff arm them. What people want to know is that we care about them and we care about their vision. And so we bring these people close and we let them know we're going to be shoulder to shoulder. And then you actually do care and you work hard to solve their problem. Absolutely. Because it's never perfect. And, and we all know that it's not a failure to have to do a touch up or enhancement on these patients. And you can't abandon your patients or you're going to have unhappy patients out there that you're not seeing. that are going to be seen by somebody else. You have to keep these refractive cataract patients close to the vest. 
as much as it may cost your practice, as much time it may take, even if it's not you, you have to have a trusted individual optometrist or technician that is keeping their arms around these patients. Because when you have the patient that's not satisfied, whether it's objectively accurate or not, you have to be there to help that patient get to where they need to be, or it's going to affect your reputation uh, down the road. So that's part of the game. And I think that there's a lot of cataract surgeons that don't really want to play in that game or that arena, but you have to be prepared for that. And that has to be part of your responsibility, just like with the LASIK patients. And we all learned a lot through LASIK that it's not just do the LASIK and you never see them again. You have to be available to help the patients when they need it. I agree, Rob. And, you know, maybe my parting thought is this. As surgeons, it's incumbent upon us to provide our patients with options. They should know what the technologies can do. And we as surgeons should know what the technologies um, can do and which patients to put them in. It's amazing. We're in two different parts of the country and we're trying to do the same thing for our patients and everybody's got their own little twist on it. But those people that are successful in refractive cataract surgery and premium cataract surgery are passionate doctors like yourself and that they're not just trying to take medical care of the medical side of cataracts, they're trying to really improve patients' quality of life and they look at every patient that comes in as a refractive patient and try to give them the opportunity to um, really live a high quality of life and reduce their need for glasses or contacts um, after their uh, procedure. So John, thank you so much for spending the time and um, yeah, we'll do this again soon, I'm sure. Thank you to Dr. Weinstock and Dr. Bertal for sharing their pearls on patient selection. And thank you for tuning in. Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Be sure to subscribe and tune in to the next episode on patient communication.